Welcome to the South Fellowship Church Podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. Jeremiah 32 says this, This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the 10th year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar. The army of the king of Babylon was then besieging Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was confined in the courtyard of the guard in the royal palace of Judah. Now Zedekiah, king of Judah, had imprisoned him there, saying, Why do you prophesy as you do? Why do you prophesy as you do? You say, this is what the Lord says. I'm about to give this city into the hands of the king of Babylon and he will capture it. Zedekiah, king of Judah, will not escape the Babylonians but will certainly be given into the hands of the king of Babylon and will speak face to face and see him with his own eyes. He will take Zedekiah to Babylon where he will remain until I deal with him, declares the Lord. If you fight against the Babylonians, you will not succeed. Jeremiah said, the word of the Lord came to me. Hanamel, son of Shalom, your uncle is going to come to you and say, buy my field at Anathoth, because as the nearest relative, it's your right and duty to buy it. Then, just as the Lord had said, my cousin Hanamel came to me in the courtyard of the guard and said, buy my field at Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin, since it is your right to redeem it and possess it and buy it yourself. I knew that this was the word of the Lord, so I bought the field at Anathoth from my cousin Hanamel and weighed out for him 17 shekels of silver. I signed and sealed the deed, had it witnessed and weighed out the silver on the scales. I took the deed of purchase, the sealed copy containing the terms and conditions as well as the unsealed copy. I gave this deed to Baruch, the son of Neriah, the son of Mansiah, in the presence of my cousin Hanamel and the witnesses who had signed the deed and all of the Jews sitting in the courtyard of the guard. In their presence, I gave Baruch these instructions. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Take these documents, both the sealed and unsealed copies of the deed of purchase, put them in a clay jar so that they will last a long time, for this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Houses, fields, and vineyards will be brought in this land. And we're going to just quickly read verse 42 as well. This is what the Lord says, I have brought all this calamity on these people, so I will give them all the prosperity I have promised them. Once more fields will be brought in this land of which it is said, it is a desolate waste without people or animals, for it has been given into the hands of the Babylonians. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Feel free to take a seat, Jesus, as we look at this on this Palm Sunday where we celebrate your entrance as king into a city. Please speak to us. Let us hear exactly what you have to say. Amen. As usual, if you have a question about this series or this week's sermon, please text it in to 720-316-3893. We have a podcast. It's on at 11 o'clock. You are busy, I expect, but it's available at lots of other times, and so we'd love to hear your conversation. As we move towards Easter and towards resurrection, we've turned this corner in Lent where we start to talk more about Passion Week, we start to bring in some of those themes, constantly keeping in mind this question. Uh, When I wake up on Resurrection Sunday morning, how will I be different? What am I preparing for? What does resurrection mean? What does resurrection mean to you? 
What does resurrection mean to the church? What does resurrection mean for the world? We've said every week, you get out of Easter what you put into Lent, and so we have this one more week to begin to stir up some of the subjects and topics that arise during Lent as we prepare for this Easter season. And we've looked at these big images that Jeremiah has introduced us to. He talks about leaking cisterns. He says the people have become people who look for spiritual satisfaction where it cannot be found. We've talked about the rigid cages. He describes them as birds in cages growing fat through lack of care for the society around them. Uh, We've talked about the open wounds that he points out, that this is a nation that is full of sores, that that is toxic, that is dying. And then last week, the image of broken pottery and and the offer of the invitation uh, of repentance. And as you'd expect during Lent, these big themes often come up, fasting, lament, repentance, all words you can go back and track with that I won't try and cover now, but but I'm going to introduce a fourth word today because I think there's something else that is important in Lent, especially as we begin to turn this corner at the end of the season. But it's a word that needs... It needs understanding. I think we, we have to misunderstand it, misuse it. In the words of the great Inigo Montoya, this word that you use, uh, I do not think it means what you think it means. Have you ever experienced that? Someone uses something as a word and you're like, no, I, I don't recognize that. That's not how I would use it. This happens to me all the time with fish and chips. Because I'm British, people invite me out for fish and chips, and I know before I leave the house that it's going to be bad. Uh, it's just something I've come to accept. It just, it's like, if you invite me, I'll come. Um, but, but I go with all of this cynicism and all these, like, like where, where is the fish coming from? We're like a thousand miles inland. Where did you get it? Uh, and so I go, and I try to keep an open mind, and I found some great fish and chips recently in Castle Rock, but, but, but it wasn't home. It wasn't real. It was missing something, and so we know what it is to use phrases or use words and, and, and recognize that people use them in different ways. And, and this phrase, this word, I think we do that often. It's the word hope. It's the word hope. I think for us, hope has become to mean, come to mean something very different to what it would have meant to someone in Jeremiah's time or in Jesus' Time. I'm going to give you a couple of idioms and I want you to kind of think about which represents our understanding of hope more accurately today. On a hope and a prayer. On a hope and a prayer. It's like that sense of like last chance, worse than 50-50 odds. It's Butch and Sundance in uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, like taking on the whole of the Bolivian army. Like just, there's no chance. The odds are not in their favor. And then there's this one. There's no doubt about it. There's no doubt about it. If I were to ask you which of those most accurately represents our understanding of the word hope, I think most of you would say the first. That's kind of how we take hope. It's like 50-50 odds at best. If you ask someone of Jeremiah's time, if you ask someone of Jesus' time, I think they'd say the second. Because according to the biblical writers, hope is robust, it's strong, it's certain, it's coming. It may not be here yet, but it's on its way. Hope is the sunrise that I saw coming over the green space and shining on the mountains this morning. It's it's real and it can be relied on. It's not just 50-50 odds. It's not just last chance saloon. That's biblical hope. That's the idea the biblical writers have of this word, hope. 
Diana Hudek says this, we might think that the hope of Lent has to do with our hope that we will get through it. How many of you are getting through Lent? We got through Jeremiah, right? Almost, anyway. That we will come to the end of it. We see Lent as an obstacle course we need to navigate in order to get to the great feast of Easter. But while the Lenten season is indeed preparation for our Easter celebration, the hope of this season is that we will find our lives transformed by the many ways we encounter God. Lent is an invitation in, as we learned last week, to, to know this God better on our journey towards resurrection. And Jeremiah makes this journey too. He too will turn the corner towards hope. Uh, Kathleen O'Connor says this, Jeremiah opens the sluice gates of grief. We've seen that. He's lamented. He's resented all that's happening. And sometimes he's clearly been on the side of God. Sometimes he represents the view of the people. He holds this middle ground, this tension. And now, after all of that, when worst case is happening, he has to do this last part. How does he revive the people's radically disrupted relationship with God? How does he restore hope? So Jeremiah 32, verse one to two, this is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the 10th year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar. The army of the king of Babylon was then besieging Jerusalem and Jeremiah the prophet was confined in the courtyard of the guard in the royal palace of Judah. So some catch up if you've tracked with some of the early weeks. We talked about how Jeremiah predicts that Babylon will come. And in 597 BC, they do, they conquer the city, the city surrenders and chooses to become what's called a vassal state. And then Nebuchadnezzar installs his own king called Zedekiah. And the city's left somewhat in peace. The best or, or the smartest, the most affluent, the, the most well-known people of the city are taken off to Babylon. But life continues, mostly uninterrupted. Until Zedekiah decides, do you know what? I'm pretty good at this king thing. We can make this work. We should kind of, we should rebel. We, we should take back the, the, the city and take back the country. And, and Nebuchadnezzar then comes back and, and the way that Nebuchadnezzar works is similar to the way that most kings worked in this age. They might come back once, they never come back twice. Nebuchadnezzar will come back and he'll wipe the city out. He'll destroy all of the major buildings, the temple, the palaces, the courts, and there'll be no economy left. So now Nebuchadnezzar is at the doorstep and everything, the, all the worst fears, well, well, they're all about to come true. And this is the midst of this conversation that I actually find kind of funny that Zedekiah has with Jeremiah because he goes to Jeremiah and says, now Zedekiah, king of Judah, had imprisoned him there saying, why do you prophesy as you do? You say this is what the Lord says and then goes on to give this list of all these terrible things Jeremiah says will happen like that the king of Babylon will come when he's outside the gates. It's like literally happening. And, and Zedekiah's answer to all of this problem is, just don't say anything about it. Just, just keep it quiet. We need the morale. Like no, maybe no one will notice the huge army outside our doorstep. Uh, he wants Jeremiah just to be quiet. I'm about to give this city into the hands of the king of Babylon and he will capture it. Zedekiah, king of Judah, will not escape the Babylonians, but will certainly be given into the hands of the king of Babylon and will speak with him face to face and see him with his own eyes. He will take Zedekiah to Babylon where he will remain until I deal with him, declares the Lord. If you fight against the Babylonians, 
Babylonians, you will not succeed. Zedekiah says, all this stuff, please stop saying that and just pretend it will be fine. But it's not fine. It's bad. Everything has gone wrong. And all of the stuff that Jeremiah said early on would happen is now happening. And then somewhat startlingly, Jeremiah turns this corner and begins to talk about hope. In Jeremiah 29, we read, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. How many of you have this verse written down somewhere? On a few walls, on a few like Bibles, it's just underlined in a few different places. That's fine, that's good. I took this verse as a life verse, but long before it was that, it was a promise to a whole bunch of people in Babylon who had lost their home. And Jeremiah writes to them and says, there's good news coming. He begins restoring hope. In Jeremiah 31, he says, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, I'm bringing them back from captivity. The people in the land of Judah and its towns will once again use these words. The Lord bless you, you prosperous city, you sacred mountain. People will live together in Judah and all its towns, farmers and those who move about with their flocks. I will refresh the weary and satisfy the faint. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds, write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. In chapter 33, he says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good promise I made to the people of Israel and Judah in those days. And at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called the Lord, our righteous Savior. From, verse, from chapter 29 through to 32, 33, Jeremiah becomes positively upbeat. He starts talking about all of these wonderful things that are going to happen eventually to this city while the Babylonians are camped on the doorstep. When everything is at its worst, Jeremiah starts talking hope to a group of people that are about to lose their home. And for the people living in this day and age, to lose home was to lose hope. The two were inexorably tied together. A loss of home was a loss of hope. How do you speak hope, Jeremiah, to the hopeless? You write to people in Babylon who've been taken into exile saying good things are coming. You write to the people, you speak to the people in Jerusalem who are about to lose home, family, all of the things that give identity. And and how do you bring hope to them? How do you speak hope to the homeless? How do you speak hope to the hopeless? How many of you here were, were, were born in a state that isn't Colorado? Okay, let's do this the easy way. How many of you were born in the state of Colorado? Okay, oh, wow, that's an impressive group of natives here, I like it. Uh, how many of you were not born in the United States? How many of you were born in a different country altogether? We've got a few people here. How many of you have made a significant move in your life, like from one area where you have family to perhaps an area where you don't have family? Last show of hands. 
whole chunk of people. When you, you lose home, you lose something. It's a loss, it's a, a change. Because I'm up here and I get to make these kind of decisions, and because it's April, I get to read you this. This is Robert Browning. Oh, to be in England now that April's there, and whoever wakes in England sees some morning unaware that the lowest boughs and the brushwood sheaf round the elm tree bowler in tiny leaf while the chaffinch sings on the orchard bough in England. Now and after April, when May follows and the white throat builds and all the swallows hark where my blossom pear tree in the hedge leans to the field and scatters on the clover, blossoms and dewdrops at the bent spray's edge. That's the wise thrush. He sings each song twice over, lest you should think he never could recapture that first fine, careless rapture. It's a song of England, of spring, this season where everything comes to life, this season of beauty. It's a song for me of home, something that I read every year at this time, and I'm like, ah, just for a week, it would be wonderful to just, to experience all of that. It's that sense of of loss of of, of home, and uh, now imagine that when there's no choice, when it's forced upon you. This is Electra in Euripides. Electra, oh my homeland, goodbye. I leave with tears blurring all that I see. It's a movement into exile and it's this recognition. It colors and changes everything about life. It's a loss of home. The Orientalist Edward Said said this, exile is the unhealable rift forced between a human being and a native place between the self and its true home. It's essential sadness can never be surmounted. How does Jeremiah bring hope to people that have lost home and have lost hope? How does he restore that, what we heard, that that drastically fractured relationship with God? How in the midst of the worst does he start to create this sense of hope? And not just 50-50 odds, not just last chance, not just a hope and a prayer, but real hope, this sense of, oh no, it's, it's coming, friends. Change is on the horizon. A new story is emerging out of this one. In the midst of 29 through 33, we read in verse 32, Jeremiah said, the word of the Lord came to me, Hanamel, son of Shalem, your uncle is going to come to you and say, buy my field at Anathoth, because as nearest relative, it's your right and duty to buy it. Then just as the Lord had said, my cousin Hanamel came to me in the courtyard of the garden and said, buy my field at Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin, since it's your right to redeem it and possess it, buy it for yourself. I knew that was the word of the Lord, so I brought the field at Anathoth from my cousin Hanamel and weighed out for him 17 shekels of silver. In a time where it makes no sense to purchase property, Jeremiah buys property in the midst of a war zone where all value is depleted and where it looks like the city will be gone forever. Jeremiah invests. He buys something. But, but not in the, like the, the Nathan Rothschild sense. Nathan Rothschild famously said, the time to buy is when there's blood in the streets. If everything's gone wrong, buy stuff, buy, buy land. It's the 2008 market idea. The property can't get any lower. Buy it now and eventually you'll be rich. It's, it's not that. That's not what he's doing. It's not even something like this. This was a house called the Wan that somebody bought as an investment or built as an investment in Hollywood. They decided to buy, to build a 100,000 square foot house and were surprised nobody could afford to buy it. And uh, they spent about a quarter of a billion dollars on it and recovered about 100 million. It's, it's not that kind of just like 
it's a bad investment, don't do it. It's, it's a horrendous investment. Jeremiah buys at full price a piece of property that, that, that in all, for all intents and purposes is worth nothing, that he won't even have access to in a place where Nebuchadnezzar is on the doorstep and he's going to wipe everything out. And Jeremiah buys it anyway. Why? Verse 10 and 12, I signed and sealed the deed, had it witnessed and weighed out the silver on the scales. I took the deed of purchase, the sealed copy containing the terms and conditions as well as the unsealed copy and I gave this deed to Baruch, son of Neriah, the son of Mansiah, in the presence of my cousin Hanamel and of the witnesses who had signed the deed and all of the Jews sitting in the courtyard of the guard. In their presence, I gave Baruch these instructions. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Take these documents, both the sealed and unsealed copies of the deed of purchase, and put them in a clay jar so they will last a long time. For this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Houses, fields, and vineyards will be brought in this land. Jeremiah buys property because he says, we're coming back here. Right now, everything might be looking like worst-case scenario, but, but we're coming back. Maybe not us, but our descendants. This, this land will be what it was again, and, and people will buy property for the price I'm buying it for again, and they will be here again. We're not done. We're not finished. There's a new story about to emerge. Jeremiah buys property because it demonstrates concretely, no, I'm still in on this. I still believe that God is doing something. It reminded me of this airplane. This is the Boeing 737 MAX, I believe it's called. Ooh, I don't know what happened there. Uh, the 737 MAX, uh, I believe it's called. Air, airplane travel is just crazily safe in the West. Pl planes just don't really crash anymore until one came along that did a couple of times and so suddenly it was pulled out of service and it had to be fixed and so the people started fixing it but the question becomes how do you get people to fly a plane that's crashed nobody wants to get on that plane even if it's just statistically these tiny odds it's it's gone up more than people want and so nobody wants to fly it so so what did the airline ceos do to get people to fly it again well, they took their families and they put them on the plane for the first flight. Sat with their kids all around them, with their extended family all around them and said, look, we're here too. This is how certain we believe this is. This is how much we know this is safe. We're in on this. Jeremiah's doing something very similar. He's buying property and he says, no, no, this land, it's still our land. There is a future here, Jeremiah offers hope, not this last chance saloon hope, not this 50-50 odds hope, but this robust sense of hope. What's fascinating is this, there should be no hope of what he promises. For, for decades, generations, every king has had the same foreign policy. What you do is you go invade a country, then you take all of the people that might rebel against you off to your country, and then you keep them prisoner there, and you let somebody else manage the land. You move in other people, they farm it, because they don't care about the land. So there's no hope. Babylon's a superpower. There's no, no change on the horizon. And then this king turns up who out of nowhere suddenly says, I'm going to change generations of foreign policy. I think people will serve me best if they're in their homeland because home is inexorably attached to hope. And so he sends them all 
home and Jeremiah and his crowd or his descendants at least, they make their way back some 70 years later. But this message of hope shouldn't, it shouldn't be robust. It shouldn't come to fruition. It shouldn't happen. But yet every prophet starts to pick up on this idea and we start to see it come up in other places. This is Isaiah in Isaiah 52. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, you watchmen, lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. This is a picture of what it is to be in a city, for it to be over, for the invading armies to be at the doorstep, for there to be no future. And then, on the horizon, on the hill around the city, you see a figure. And that figure's running, and he comes down with news that back in wherever the power decisions are made, back in Babylon, your king has conquered. You don't know how, you don't know why, but but something has changed. He's a messenger of good news. He's bringing something. The city of Jerusalem was surrounded by mountains. It's why Psalm 125 says, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people both now and forevermore. And so all around the, the largeness of the city are these seven different hills. And the picture Isaiah creates is imagine we're about to be conquered. And suddenly this figure is on one of the hills and he's making his way down and he's bringing startlingly good news. Hold on to that idea because it matters later on. A king or a messenger of the king is coming down the mountain and he's bringing good news. He's bringing good news. In Jeremiah's narrative, the people are told that they will come back again, and they do, but somewhat tragically, perhaps, the cycle just repeats. Another nation comes in and takes over. The Romans in Jesus' time now are in control, and it just seems that life is this constant up and down, and the question might be again, really? There was hope, and then there was lost hope, and then there was hope again? Like, who can stand this? Who can handle this hope that constantly seems like it's there and then it's not there? And that probably is a question you and I need an answer to sometimes. How do you maintain hope, real hope, in the face of repeated loss or replace loss with any other word? How do you keep hopeful when you've had cancer and then it's gone and now it's back again? How do you keep hopeful when the marriage was struggling and then it felt like there was healing and now it's back on the rocks again? How do you keep hopeful when the business was failing and then you were able to save it and then now same situation again? How do you keep hopeful when there's been a school shooting and then another one and then another one? How do you keep hopeful when the narrative seems like even in the moment it seems like it gets a little better it suddenly gets worse again. How do you keep that repeated sense of hope? How do you keep hopeful when you've said no to the addiction for a season, but now you're back where you were before? How do you keep hopeful when everything points to know the cycle will just be the same again? That's the question we have to ask when we look at Jeremiah and the future he paints. Everything will be great, we'll be back in the town again, but... Same again, same cycle again. What do you do when you failed and then recovered 
and then failed again. What do you do then? This question Jeremiah leaves just lingering, and I guess there's a few different options to that. Maybe the first is you just learn to go with the current. This is Modest Mouse in their song, Float On. Bad news comes, don't you even worry when it lands. Good news will work its way to all them plans. We both got fired on exactly the same day. Well, we'll float on. Good news is on the way. Que sera, sera, just figure it out. Maybe that's the one attitude to that that we might adopt. Maybe a second one is the, the, the more cynical attitude. It's the Alexander Pope philosophy. Blessed is he who expects nothing, for he shall never be disappointed. <laughs> just stop hoping for good stuff. That's the easiest way, right? Life is, yeah. But maybe there's a third route, and it's one that my absolute favorite writer of all time, Frederick Beaton, well, at least top five favorite writer of all time, introduces. Martin Luther once said, if I were God, I'd kick the world to pieces. But Martin Luther wasn't God. God is God, and God has never kicked the world to pieces. He keeps re-entering the world, keeps offering himself to the world by grace, keeps somehow blessing the world, making possible a kind of life which we all, in our deepest being, hunger for. It seems that God, in the midst of our up and down story, constantly inserts himself back into the story in new ways, in new and hopeful ways. When he has every right to say, I'm done with this story, he is still immersed and still involved in it throughout all of our up and down undulations and cycles. He's with that in the people, with the people of Judah, and he's with it with you in the marriage thing the business thing, the shooting thing, the cancer thing, the up and down and up and down and up and down and why and again, again, again. It seems that God keeps reimmersing himself in the story and maybe invites us to do the same again. And that brings us to Palm Sunday where once again God is in that story, reinserting himself into it, getting involved in it in a moment of down, bringing it back to new places of hopefulness. Uh, Luke chapter 19, when he came near the place where the road goes down, the Mount of Olives, a king coming down the mountain to a city, sound familiar? The whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Palm Sunday is not just a fun day where kids sing cute songs. And they were cute. And the kids were cute. And two of them were mine. So maybe I'm a little biased. But it's not just that. It's not just that. Palm Sunday is a day where we say, here comes the king. And he brings good news of surprising victory. Not surprising to him, but perhaps surprising us and the, the armies may seem like they surround the city and everything may seem like it's the lowest point but but despite all appearances this king says I have conquered in the most surprising ways and yet even here watch how this verse works watch how this works joy and then lament as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had known, the day, on the, the day, known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes, the days will come upon you and your enemies will build an embankment against you 
and encircle you, encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Again? Again? And yet what Jesus seems to say is this, again, yes, but I am here with you in this story, bringing hope when it's most needed. Hope, it seems, is intertwined with lament. It's okay to hold two together. It's okay to hold, yes, it's certain. There's not a doubt about it alongside why, again, no, all of those different words we associate with lament. Hope is intertwined with lament because hope is intertwined with home, and we aren't home yet. And that's difficult for us to hold as Western followers of Jesus. Because if we're honest, even when it's hard, life is pretty good here and we believe we can make it. And yet for so much of the world, it's, it's not that story. And there is only the idea of one day we come home. There's this beautiful idea in stories that they end with particular words. I love the starts of stories. I love the ends of stories. This is the end to Harry Potter as a saga. If you've not read it, I'm sorry. You've had enough time. (laughs) The last words are these. The scar had not pained Harry for 19 years or was well. But that's not a new idea. That comes from somewhere. Julian of Norwich, centuries before that, prayed regularly this over her people and over this world. She predicted a day in line with what Jesus said about this world where these words would become true. All shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. Picture where right now it does not feel well. Picture right now where it feels like the armies are around the city, that the ramparts are being built, and everything feels like it's over. And over that thing, God says, all shall be well. And all shall be well. And all manner of things shall be well. Emily Towns says this, hope is neither sentimental nor vapid. It does not give up on God over us. Hope refuses to believe that evil and suffering and sorrow and hatred are God's final words to us in a world that is a spinning top of war and violence. This hope believes and guides us to another way in which we are all made whole. The power of the common good shaping our lives and that of countless others on the highway of salvation. When met with the undulation and the constant againness of the world, God doesn't seem to get cynical. He doesn't seem to just say, so what, it'll just figure itself out. He seems to reimmerse himself in the world, hopefully, and invites us to do the same as well. Caitlin Roy DeBellis was one of the teachers at Sandy Hook in the shooting there. And after helping multiple kids hide in a bathroom, she had to process her own sense of grief, and she came up with this. This is a woman who's experienced the worst, who's been in the midst of it. You can choose hope, even in the darkest hour, and in that choice you will find light. We have that power, I do, you do, everyone does. Emily Dickinson said, hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. And sweetest in the gale is heard and sore must be the storm that could abash 
that little bird. She pictures us human beings as people that are predicated towards hope. It comes out of us because we are like our father and he is constantly hopeful. Not in a last chance saloon type way. Not in a 50-50 yards, not in a butch and Sundance way, but in a robust way that says, no, 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 it is coming. A new story is emerging. Lanston Hughes said, hold fast to dreams, for if dreams die, life is a broken-winged bird that cannot fly. Paul, the apostle, said this, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not have, we wait for it patiently. We wait for it like we wait for the sunrise, like we wait for the thing that's promised and it's on its way. It's in the mail, it's guaranteed. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. For some reason, the New Living Translation chooses to translate it like this. Three things will last forever, and it seems hope is one of those things that continues into the new kingdom when all is well, and all will be well, and all manner of things will be well. My other favorite writer of all time, Definitely in the top five. Uh, Walter Brueggemann says this, to assert the rule of God is not to be stupid in a dangerous world, but it's to begin to turn loose of the fear that immobilizes. It is a dream and a hope, but it is a subversive peacemaking activity because it announces that the empire is finished. Babylon is done, even when it's around the city. Your God has just become king. Your God, the God of Israel, the Lord of the Exodus, the one who fells cities and gives offspring to barren women, the one who seemed to be defeated by the Babylonians in 587, this God has now gone back into the dispute and won. That is the heart of the gospel. That this God who seemed to be defeated, in fact, is the God who governs us. We make our way through Holy Week, through the passion of Jesus towards resurrection. Isn't that the story? The God who seemed to be defeated is really alive and renewing hope in the most surprising ways. This is his world, is that declaration. And one day, all will be well. And all will be well and all manner of things will be well. As we've invited ourselves to do each, day, each week of Lent, my invitation is a wake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Aaron's gonna come and lead us in a song, but some discernment questions for you. In what area of life do I need renewed hope? We talked about all of the ways that it's up and down. Do I still commit to this thing? Do I try again? How can I be renewed hope, bring renewed hope to others? And to when are my hopes attached? Is it now? Is it something God is still doing? Some practices if you would like them. Spend each time practicing, each day practicing gratitude this week for what is past. Ask, what have I given up on that I need to recommit to? 
Give financially to something with no need of a return. That's what Jeremiah does. Give time to something that may not produce results. Enter hopefully into God's world because that's what he does. He brings himself time and time again back to this story, even when it seems like the worst is happening. Would you stand with me? And Jesus, today we celebrate Palm Sunday. We celebrate with songs that say things like Hosanna and recognize that the King is coming. We celebrate because even when it seems like the armies are surrounding the city, there is a messenger coming from the hills and he brings exciting news. Your King is here and he has been victorious. And all circumstances and all events may point to the otherwise and yet the empire is dead. Jesus, today we acknowledge you and celebrate you as king. This is your world. We are part of it. And we give ourselves to it hopefully, knowing that one day all will be well. And all will be well. And all manner of things will be well. Amen. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us by partnering with us. You can give online at southfellowship.org give. And thanks for listening. We hope you have a great rest of your day.